Welcome to Clippings, the official podcast of the Council for Nail Disorders, where Drs. April Schachtel and Catherine Stiff take a closer look at articles and clippings published on all things nail disease. Listeners can suggest articles for this podcast or topics of discussion by sending an email to kristen.cnd at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to episode six of the Clippings podcast, where we review the nail literature and present it to you. I'm April Schachtel, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Catherine Stiff. Hey, April. We are excited to explore two papers with you today. My paper is entitled Nail Surgery, Six Essential Techniques from Julia Baltz and Nat Jelinek, published in Dermatologic Clinics in April 2021. It's a review article focusing on expert opinion of six high-yield procedures, which will help clinicians perform most important procedures on the nail unit. And as someone myself who is just starting to do nail procedures, I found it a really helpful article. I'm going to go through the highlights of the procedures one by one. So procedure one, they describe as a distal digital nerve block. The authors advocate for this technique over the traditional digital block or local infiltrative block. And the targets are the paired digital nerves, which contribute to varying amounts of innervation to the digit, depending on which digit we're talking about. For what anesthetic to use, they recommend ropivacaine because of being faster onset than bupivacaine, inherently vasoconstrictive and having a long effect much longer than lidocaine uh, post-procedurally and also having a good safety profile. They recommend using distraction techniques like tachesthesia, a massager, refrigerant spray. And the primary injection points are a few millimeters distal to the dorsal interphalangeal joint on each the ulnar and radial sides of the finger or medial lateral side of the toes. Uh, This will hit the main sensory nerves, ideally before they trifurcate and innervate the nail unit distally. So the needle should be inserted perpendicular to the skin and advanced very slowly while injecting anterograde and repeated on the opposite side. Then, starting at the initial injection point, the proximal nail fold can be anesthetized by slowly marching across it, but always starting from an area that's already numb to minimize the patient's pain. Procedure number two is the punch biopsy, which is done for an indication of diagnosing an inflammatory or neoplastic condition. And the biopsy, it's important to target it towards the nail matrix or the bed, wherever the pathology you're trying to diagnose is. The procedure is done by using a three millimeter punch tool, applying it directly to the plate and twisting it until uh, with downward pressure until bone is reached. The punch instrument is then carefully withdrawn and using fine tissue scissors um, to dissect out the punch specimen. Hemostasis is obtained with pressure. And although this is not the sort of first line preferred procedure for the diagnosis of longitudinal melanonychia, it does have the advantages of um, having less morbidity to the patient because there's not even a proximal partial plate avulsion. Also, you might be able to avoid the morbidity of reflecting the proximal nail fold by kind of pushing it back rather than making incisions to reflect it back. Scars tend to be minimal, especially if it's a punch biopsy of the nail bed. 
Procedure number three is the tangential excision, uh, which is the technique most often used to diagnose longitudinal melanonychia. And it often, in addition to making a diagnosis, will fully excise the lesion, which can mean that you're done if you diagnose a, a benign lesion. Prior to anesthesia, the area will be mapped and marked because the pigment can be a lot less obvious after anesthesia is injected. A nail elevator will be used to free the plate from the cuticle. Two tangential incisions are made in the proximal nail fold, and they make the suggestion that in order to help avoid damaging the matrix, can insert the nail elevator under the nail fold in the path of the scalpel, so that protects the matrix. Or you can insert the scalpel from the ventral side of the proximal nail fold, sort of sharp side up, and incise the nail fold from the bottom up. A partial proximal plate avulsion or a lateral plate curl can provide adequate exposure to the matrix. The lesions visualized and scored with a narrow one to two millimeter margin in a rectangle with a 15 blade scalpel. And the blade is then inserted tangentially and with slow sweeping and stabbing motions, it's freed from the underlying tissue. Then you place the specimen on a paper nail map and then in a cassette, and it should be sectioned longitudinally by the pathologist. Proximal nail folds and plate can be sutured in place with rapidly absorbable suture. The same procedure, but done for erythronychia, is slightly different in that a total nail plate avulsion might be necessary for larger lesions. And after the avulsion, it depends on, on what the lesion looks like, but a tangential excision might be necessary and would include the distal matrix, the entire bed, and often the hyperkeratotic papule at the hyponychium. Procedure number four is a lateral longitudinal excision, and the indication is for diagnosis of an inflammatory process like psoriasis or lichen planus. This will allow you to look at the uh, matrix and the nail bed. When it's performed correctly, the nail will be expected to be 10% narrower after the procedure, and there are risks of a spicule. So if it's an option based on the pathology, then the non-dominant hand is preferred. The sample should be marked, and that should include the proximal nail fold with underlying matrix, the lateral nail plate and underlying bed, the lateral nail fold if that's involved, as well as the hyponychium and the distal tip skin. It's very important to include the lateral matrix horn, that's the key point here, to prevent spicule formation. The authors describe making the incision and they make a key suggestion that when the blade is advanced from the proximal nail fold through the nail plate, that one should rock the blade over the dorsal phalanx to prevent an inadvertent full thickness incision through the distal pulp, which could injure the clinician performing the procedure. Once the incision is completed, then fine tissue scissors are used to remove the specimen. The proximal nail fold and digital tip skin are reapproximated with rapidly absorbable suture, and the lateral nail fold is secured to the lateral nail plate last. Moving on, procedure five is a nail wedge biopsy, which is indicated for nail bed tumors, most commonly with the differential of wart versus squamous cell carcinoma. The diagnostic yield is higher than, than if a punch biopsy is done, and also the wedge biopsy has the advantage of removing and potentially curing the tumor rather than just sampling it, which a punch biopsy would do. So a tourniquet is placed 
and the nail bed tumor plus narrow margins is scored with a scalpel blade and excised to just above the dorsal phalanx and removed with scissors. The tourniquet is removed and quite simply hemostasis is obtained with pressure and the wound heals with secondary intention, which is pretty amazing. It sounds like it takes four to eight weeks depending on the size of the wound. The last and the largest procedure that they describe in this paper is an on-block excision of all nail tissues, which has been suggested as the treatment of choice for nail unit melanoma in situ. Uh, This is sparing amputation, so a digit sparing surgery. This is a very complex procedure, and they carefully detail all the steps in the paper, and I won't fully go into that here, given the complexity of that procedure. The stated limitations of this paper are that they don't cover every single nail disease and procedure, which is, of course, really not possible in a single article. I really appreciated that this article represents the up-to-date expertise of these authors, which is, you know, sometimes more out of date in a textbook. And again, as someone who's recently started doing nail surgery, I appreciated the sort of practical but nuanced wisdom of the article. I think it makes nail surgery a bit more accessible to those who feel uncomfortable with it. And access to nail surgery from dermatologists is absolutely in the best interest of our patients. So I've summarized the key points of the article, but I really encourage you to read it along with the other nail-focused articles in this issue of Dermatologic Clinics. All right. Thanks, April. Yeah, same, similar to you. I also really appreciated the author's thorough descriptions of these procedures and they had some really helpful tips. And I've only seen punch biopsies to diagnose inflammatory nail disorders, but I can see how the lateral longitudinal excision would give you more information. I will discuss the article, Evaluating the Utility of Routine Imaging in Squamous Cell Carcinoma of the Nail Unit by Drs. Clark et al. with Dr. Knackstead as the senior author, published in Dermatologic Surgery in November 2020. Now, we've talked about longitudinal melanonychia and nail unit melanoma in prior podcasts, but haven't touched much on nail unit squamous cell carcinoma, or SCC, which is the most common malignancy of the nail apparatus. Similar to melanoma, nail unit SCC has a two-year average delay in diagnosis. The treatment of choice is now local excision or Mohs micrographic surgery. Due to their proximity to the distal phalanx, nail tumors may invade bone or alter the anatomy from pressure effects. And when bony invasion is suspected, amputation is considered. So preoperative imaging to evaluate for the presence of bone invasion is often performed. The authors aim to investigate the utility of routine imaging, identify predictors of bone involvement, and determine whether image findings affect the decision to pursue Mohs or local excision versus the more aggressive amputation. A retrospective chart review was performed at Cleveland Clinic, Medical College of Wisconsin, and Columbia University Irving Medical Center between 1996 and 2017. They identified 107 patients with a biopsy-proven diagnosis of nail unit SCC, of these, 41% had preoperative imaging. The only significant differences in patient characteristics between imaging and non-imaging groups are that pain was more common in patients in the imaging group, and patients in the non-imaging group were more likely to be asymptomatic. The majority of patients were treated by dermatology, orthopedic surgery, or plastic surgery. 
66% of patients were initially treated with Mohs, 22% with amputation, and 11% with excision. 14 patients required a subsequent treatment to achieve clear margins. 13 of those had secondary amputations performed. Interestingly, most surgery was more commonly performed in the no imaging group, and amputation was more commonly performed in the imaging group. For imaging modalities, 37 of the 44 patients had an X-ray. Other imaging modalities consisted of MRI and CT. 19 patients had normal image findings. The most frequent finding was uh, soft tissue edema, and bony changes were found in 13 of the 44 imaged patients. In seven patients, the treatment plan was changed and amputation was performed due to these image findings of bony invasion. Three out of seven patients in the primary amputation with bony destruction on imaging group had bone invasion identified in their amputation specimens. And of the seven patients who had preoperative imaging and amputation as secondary treatment after positive margins, none had bony destruction on their preoperative imaging, yet one had bony invasion on their amputation specimen. Six patients in total had bony invasion in their amputation specimen, and of these, three had preoperative imaging evidence of that, two did not, and one didn't have any preoperative imaging. And of note, there were no cases of recurrence with any of the treatment modalities with a mean follow-up of 4.5 years. I feel like I just threw a lot of numbers at you, but in summary, in 93% of patients, imaging was either not performed or did not change management. Imaging was more common in patients who reported pain, but pain did not predict the presence of bony changes on imaging. The amputation was more commonly performed in the imaging group, which might be because both imaging and amputation were performed with more clinically aggressive appearing tumors but that's just one hypothesis. Uh, There was no evidence of this. Um, Only six of the 36 patients who received amputation had bony invasion in their amputation specimens. And of the seven patients who had amputation after bony destruction was found on preoperative imaging, four patients either did not have any residual tumor in their amputation specimen or had no bony invasion identified suggesting these patients may have been overtreated as a result of their image findings. Given the functional impairment of amputation, the authors believe that amputation should be reserved for cases where bony invasion is apparent on margin assessment by Mohs or excision, when significant degloving of the digit occurs, or when image findings suggest bony invasion to a degree that can't be managed with local soft tissue and bone excision, which wasn't exactly clear what that would look like. Also, as a side note, I made the mistake of doing a Google image search of degloving, and it is not pretty. (laughs) Um, So anyways, this study suggests that imaging does not seem to influence treatment, and in most cases, the treatment choice is driven by the training specialty, with dermatologists more likely to refer to Mohs. The authors do not routinely perform imaging for nail unit SCC, But when imaging is performed, they recommend x-ray with two to three views as first-line diagnostic test due to it being much less expensive than MRI. Some limitations of this study include its retrospective nature, which is inherent in most studies, but 
It does not account for amputation performed for non-medical reasons, such as patient preference, and that the review of radiologic images relied on the radiologist on record. It was not standardized and re-reviewed for the study. But overall, I think this is a well-conducted study, 107 patients. It is the largest cohort of nail unit SCC that we currently have. Based on this study and the functional limitations of amputation, I think it is reasonable to forgo preoperative imaging and pursue digit sparing surgery, then proceed with amputation only if positive margins or bony invasion are evident at the time of surgery. Thanks, Catherine. I I thought it was really interesting how there wasn't a good correlation between finding the bony destruction on imaging and um, actually having bony invasion on specimens. I think that's not really very well understood, actually, and was a really enlightening kind of takeaway from this Mm -hmm. paper. Catherine, thank you for joining me on this episode of Clippings. I want to thank our listeners for their attention. To all of our listeners, please share this podcast with your colleagues and trainees. Let us know how we are doing and which articles you would like us to review on the show by contacting kristen.cnd at gmail.com. 